Uh, we are going through our uh, Summer in the Psalms uh, this year, and we've come to Psalm 63. Obviously, we've not gone through 62 other Psalms. We've picked out ones that are particular to prayer and things that we should be praying for. So today it's prayer for transcendence. It's a big word. So let's see what uh, David means uh, in this psalm. So if you turn to Psalm 63, uh, that would be great. We'll read all of it. Listen carefully, as always, this is God's word. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to the Psalms again this morning to learn more about ourselves and to learn more about you and to learn how to pray and to learn how to praise you for who you are and what you have done. And Lord, we come somewhat clueless. We want your gifts, but we don't know how to ask for the giver of all good things. We want your steadfast love, but we don't know how to ask for it. So Lord, once again, teach us what to say, teach us what to believe, teach us how to pray, draw us near, and help us to learn from you this morning. And so we pray, speak through this Psalm of David this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus, for in his name we pray, amen and amen. Some of you have come back from vacation, some of you are getting ready to go, and some of you are kind of always there, Um, and the rest of us are jealous of you. But it's good to have everybody here this morning. I never know in the middle of the summer what it's going to be like. Um, So I do want to talk about this thing called spectacles this morning, and I'm not talking about eyeglasses. Because 60 years ago, the historian and librarian of Congress, Daniel Borstein, uh, gave us a warning. He said, we risk being the first people in history to have been able to make their illusions so vivid, so persuasive, so realistic that they can live in them. We are the most illusioned people on earth. Yet we dare not become disillusioned 
because our illusions are the very home in which we live. They are our news, our heroes, our adventure, our forms of art, our very experience. Sixty years later, this risk is now our reality. We live as if all the media broadcasts into our eyes is life itself. As if our images now offer us an alternative, alternative existence. Now, in his book, I'm going to recommend a bunch of books today. Uh, first one is called Competing Spectacles, Treasuring Christ in the Media Age. And the author, Tony uh, Reinecke, defines spectacles as something that captures human attention. An instant when our eyes and brains focus and fixate on something projected at us. He says, quote, In an outraged society like ours, spectacles are often controversies. The latest scandal in sports, entertainment, or politics. A spark is lit, it grows into a viral flame on social media, and then ignites the visual feeds of millions. That's a spectacle. And as the speed of media grows faster and faster, those minuscule public slips of the tongue or passive-aggressive celebrity comment or a hypocritical political image can become a spectacle. Whether it's true or false, real or fiction, a spectacle is the visible thing that holds a collective gaze. And behind it all, spectacles want something from us. Consuming is part of it, but we don't merely ingest spectacles, we respond to them. Well-made visuals tug at the strings of our heart. Compelling images awaken the motives that lead to action. And these images demand... Our celebration, our awe, our affection, our time, and our outrage. Images invoke our consensus, our approval, our buy-in, our power, and our wallets. Why do we seek spectacles? Because we're human. Because we're hardwired with an unquenchable appetite to see glory. Our hearts seek Splendor as our eyes scan for greatness. We can't help it. One writer said, the world aches to be awed. That ache was made for God. The world seeks it mainly through movies. And sports and entertainment and politics and crime and celebrity gossip and warfare. In other words, we're not simply creatures of our environment. We're creatures shaped by what grabs our attention. And what we give our attention to becomes both our objective and subjective reality. As an example, identical twins raised in an identical environment will be shaped differently if they focus on different things. We attend to what interests us. And in the end, we become like what we watch. Now, Tony Reinecke says, we have made spectacles of social media, of online gaming, any type of video, what he calls televisuals, 
merchandise and the merchandising of merchandise, politics, sports, terror, and warfare. And each of these demonstrates two competing interests. One leads to the dehumanizing of individual people, and the other sort of leads to the rehumanizing of people as we search for something greater than ourselves. And nowhere is that seen more than in the spectacle of the self in social media. One anthropologist says our screen technology has grown to a new pinnacle of addictive delight. Am I coming across too loud? It sounds loud to me. Can you turn me down a tad? Thank you. It says largely because our screens make it possible for us to live in a dual role as both spectator and star. In that rare moment when we catch broad attention, whether through our images or tweets or memes, we become the star. And when we watch ourselves get approval and likes and get shared and get retweeted, we become the spectator too. And as we watch others watching us, we get caught up in the energy of becoming the star. And then we become spectators of our own digital selves. And our digital photos and selfies only amplify that self-projection. According to Global Stats, we now take more than one trillion digital pictures each year. We become actors before our own phones and the phones of our friends. And we modify ourselves and we filter our appearance and we become spectators of ourselves because, quote, each selfie is a performance of a person, not as they are, but as they hope to be seen by others. So we have to ask, why is all of this happening? And it's a simple answer, because innately, all people suffer from the need for transcendence. So if you have the outline, that's your first blank. If you don't have the outline, you can get it from the website. Just go to today's sermon, and it'll give you sermon notes and a sermon outline. But the need for transcendence. Transcendence is a theological term. And it refers to the relationship of God to creation. God is wholly other, completely different from his creation. He is independent and distinct from his creatures and thoughts, words, and actions. Isaiah 55 tells us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is above and beyond his creation nor is he limited by or bound to his creation. And we long to know that, to see that, to experience some of that for ourselves. Everybody, everywhere, wants to see and know and be part of something bigger than themselves. And almost everyone gets it wrong. Because we take material things and visual things and created things and try to make them spiritual things. We try to take the imminent, what's with us here and now, and pretend it's transcendent, something above and beyond us. 
something that's wholly other, and it just doesn't work. And while we usually get it wrong, King David got it right. Look with me at verse 1, Psalm 63, verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. We just sang that. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now, I'm not going to talk about thirst. Mark Riss covered that last week. And while the psalm sounds similar at the start, we'll see it's really about the search for transcendence, the thirst for transcendence, the need for transcendence that every human heart experiences. Now, you know, in the early part of the 20th century, about 100 years ago, most experts said in a culture in which science and technology were advancing, that religion would diminish. And the reason was they thought that we'd be able to explain everything. And as human beings uh, felt helpless, they didn't understand their surroundings, they would need God. But as soon as they came to understand their surroundings and everything else, they understood what lightning is, what thunder is, how the body works, then they're not going to need God anymore. That was the working assumption. And here's what's amazing. To the absolute horror and shock of all kinds of experts, the opposite has happened. The more we've explained things, the more technological we've become, the more scientific we've, been, we've become, uh, the more discoveries we've made, the more we've tried to explain everything by natural causes, the thirst for transcendence has gotten stronger. And there is not an anthropologist or psychologist or sociologist who would disagree with that right now. They don't necessarily understand it, but virtually all of them realize there's this incredible need for transcendence in the human heart. Now, I don't know how many of you remember, it's an old book, Megatrends, by John Naisbitt. It was published back in the 80s. It's been updated a whole bunch of times. Um, So I'll add this to my stack of books here. Um, But this very first edition was published back in 1982. It's 41 years ago. I know that because I got married that year. Um, About the only thing I remember about that year. uh, But in this very first edition, he talks about the need for transcendence. He talks about the fact that science and technology are going to try to reduce everything to a commodity and try to explain everything versus... Uh, via natural causes and natural components. And he says the result will be to create a spiritual desert. The author, John Naisbitt, said the result of advances in technology would mean that we would end up living in a, quote, a dry and weary land. He got that from David. I'd say Psalm 63, but actually David says it a number of times in a number of Psalms. Now, in his third book, Yawning at Tigers, You Can't Tame God, So Stop Trying. The author, Drew Dyke, says, I think in every heart there remains a deep-seated desire to stand in the presence of a holy and transcendent God. People are thirsty for transcendence. They need to hear about a holy God. And even if they deny that they're sinful, I think deep down they know that they are. 
they know they need the grace and mercy of a holy God. God's glory is set above the heavens. He is transcendent, and our souls long for transcendence. We long for something bigger than all of this, bigger than our daily problems and pursuits and achievements. And yes, those things are important, and they're an important part of our lives, but our souls long to see something greater, something more glorious, greater than our politicians, greater than our sports stars and our celebrities, more significant than TikTok or Twitter, Instagram or threads. How many people are on threads? We got any? We got a few people are sort of, yeah. We haven't admitted yet. Six months from now, it'll be half of you. We want something that's more profound than Maverick or Indiana Jones. We long for the transcendence of God. Psalm 8 verse 1 says, you have set your glory above the heavens. God's glory transcends the sun's glory. It dwarfs the glory of our solar systems or galaxies or the largest stars in the universe. That psalm begins and ends with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. If you think about it, if you ever go out and look at the vastness of the universe, if you get away from Loudoun County where the skies are actually dark, and you look up and you can see all the stars, it can make you feel insignificant and meaningless. It's so vast and big. And yet we yearn for significance and meaning. Somehow we want the something that is bigger than us to connect with us in a real way. So when David says at the beginning of our psalm, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. We always talk about what he's doing. We forget the repeated word here is you. The emphasis is on God. This is a Hebrew redundancy. He's trying to say my entire being cries out for a connection to God. David is not saying, well, you know, it's hard for me to account for reality unless there's a God. This is not a matter of better reasoning. What he's saying is, my soul needs transcendence like my body needs water. As deep a need as that. And the Bible says the reason for that need is because you were built for him, by him. So the first thing we learn here, and it's critical, is the heart needs transcendence. You can't live without transcendence. So how do you find it? How do we begin the search for transcendence? Let's look at the next couple of verses the search for transcendence. First of all, you have to put knowing the transcendent God as an end in itself. It has to be your highest priority, knowing God. You never experience the transcendence of God if it's a means to an end. It must be an end in itself. Look at verse 3. David says, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. That's a remarkable statement given his circumstances. And what are those circumstances? When you open your Bibles, you often see headings at the top of the Psalms. And at the top of Psalm 63, it says, The Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, we know he was in the wilderness twice. First time, he was running from King Saul. Second time, he's running from his son, Absalom. And this is the second time. Absalom is trying to take the kingship away from David. 
And his son has raised up an army to fight against him. His son has chased him into the desert. His son is trying to kill him to get the kingship. And God had told David already, this was going to happen because of your sin. Remember, David is mostly remembered for uh, his various sins. He wiped out the entire Ten Commandments in one day. And God told him, what you tried to do in public, I'm going to have done to you, or tried to do in private, I will have done to you in public. And that's in Second Samuel 12. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And so due to David's sin, his family becomes toxic. David lost four children. One son tried to kill another son. One of his sons sexually assaulted one of his daughters. They all hated each other, and it just got worse. All sorts of violence and perversion. And now Absalom, his son, is trying to kill him, and it's all because of David's sin. And now David's life is at stake. He's run off into the wilderness for the second time in his life. So he comes to God and begins to pray. And what does he say? He doesn't say what you would expect. He doesn't say, Lord, save me from Absalom. He doesn't say that. What's he say? Verse 2. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. His life is in danger. And David tells God, your love is better than my life. Think about that. People come to church for all kinds of reasons. They come to Christianity for all kinds of reasons. My life is falling apart. I need strength. My career is failing. I need to stay sharp. Things in my life are very difficult. I need relief. I need an experience of God so I can have the life I want. David doesn't do that. David says, when I have your love, I have my life. Your love is better than life. Your love gives me all the life I want. I have all the joy I need when I'm in your care. I have all the safety I want when I know your love. Lord, I want to see your power and glory. I want to experience your presence. I want to know your steadfast love. It's better than life itself. You think about it, it's a little intimidating. Because I think if we're honest, we take a look at ourselves There's a tendency for us to think, I'd like to experience God, so I'll be the person I want to be, so I'll have the life I want to have. But that's not what David is saying. He says, your steadfast love is better than life. You'll never know the transcendence of God. You'll never experience intimacy with the infinite unless you're willing to say, knowing God is an end in itself. Knowing God's steadfast love is my highest goal. How do we do that? How do we express transcendence? Look with me, verses 3 through 8. Where do we start? I mean, if we're going to pray for transcendence, that's the title of the sermon, it has to start with God. It has to start with who he is and what he's done. It means we need to be captivated and astonished by those things. When we look at what God has done, we should be immediately moved to praise him. When we look at who he is, we should be moved to 
adoration of him. So how do you do that? How do you praise and adore God? Let's go back to our text, starting again at verse 3. Listen to what David says. Remember, he's in the wilderness. He's running for his life. Absalom is trying to kill him. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Look at what David says here. He doesn't just say, Lord, you're great. He breaks it down. He analyzes it. He lists all the reasons. He says, I see your power. I see your glory. I see your love. He's breaking it down. Praise starts like that. You break it down into specifics. You list, you catalog the glories of God. You go on and on about all the different ways in which he's glorious. Why? Because praise is linked to love. When you fall in love with somebody, many of you have, some of you are waiting for that to happen, your mind goes into overdrive about what's so great about that other person. And you can be really specific. Most of you have heard of Elizabeth Barrett Browning's Sonnet 43. You may not know the name, you may not know the author. But you've heard of it. It's very famous. It starts, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. That's a language of love. Not, oh, you're great. It's, let me count the ways. You get specific. You go into details. Now, many of you know that classic, weird and wonderful comedy movie, Groundhog Day. It is one of my favorites. It's quite biblical. Except for, like, the whole day and uh, over and over again. So the main character is played by Bill Murray and he has the same day repeated over and over and over again, Groundhog Day. And during this time, he falls in love with the character played by Andy uh, McDowell. And he, of course, has now spent a lot of time with her days and days and days over and over and over and over again. And he's seen everything that he loves about her. Whereas on the other hand, she has no idea what's going on, what's happening. She doesn't know that she's reliving this over and over again. So every day is fresh for her. And at one point in the movie, he tries to say that he loves her. And she kind of interrupts him and says, you don't love me. You don't even know me. And suddenly he looks at her and he says, you like boats, but not the ocean. You like a lake in summer and the mountains. You're a sucker for French poetry and rhinestones. You're very generous. You're kind to strangers and children. And when you stand in the snow, you look like an angel. It's riveting. Because he doesn't just say, I love you. He says, here's what I love about you. He's listing her qualities. He's analyzing what he loves about her. And as you go through the list, your heart expands and your loved one's heart expands. And that's praise. That's what David is doing over and over again. 
My lips will praise you. I will bless you. I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied. My mouth will praise you. I will remember you. I'll meditate on you. I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Now, David has given us the why, your steadfast love. And that's actually really important because your steadfast love is so really important. It's one word in Hebrew, and it's probably the most important word in the Old Testament. It's called hesed. We would, in English, spell it H-E-S-E-D. It's usually translated as steadfast love or loving kindness. And it means unconditional love, covenant love, committed love, undeserved love, as grace is to the New Testament Uh, Hesed is to the Old Testament. It stresses the faithful continuance of God's love, that it's steady and unchangeable. And that's why it's better than the best things in life. That's why it's better than life itself, David says. Life itself can be lost even though we value it and try to protect it at all costs. But the steadfast love of the Lord can never be lost. Now that's the why of David's praise. And now he lists... The, the what and the how. He's not just thinking about God's glory. He's expressing it. He's expressing it musically. He's expressing it publicly. He's expressing it corporately. He's talking about praising God in the sanctuary. Verse 2. Now, it's hard to understand praise and what that really is. Now, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, fourth book for today, Reflections on the Psalms by C.S. Lewis, And I'll have all these if you want to look at them. Um, He has a chapter called A Word About Praising. And uh, he talks about, he really struggled with this when he first became a Christian. He was really put off by the fact that God asks us to praise him. He, He said, that sounds pretty conceited. And he gave as an example, he said, now if you're talking to a woman, you've been talking for a while... And then all of a sudden she says, enough about you. Uh, Don't you think my dress is beautiful? Don't I look great in it? And you might say, yeah. This is C.S. Lewis, not me. Uh, And he says, but then you want to get away because you think she's conceited. He said, why do we treat God any differently? And Lewis says he went through this whole phase. He thought God was conceited to be asking for praise. But then he says... It's because I didn't understand how praise works. He says when he didn't understand is, is that when you enjoy something, that joy becomes praise. If you listen to music you really like, you want to grab someone and say, listen to this. If you see some beautiful landscape, you want to grab somebody and say, look at that. You praise it and you want them to praise it too. You want them to say, wow, that's beautiful, that's amazing. He says, why? Lewis says, if you enjoy something, you have to praise it to others. It's sort of this visceral gut reaction. You have this need to praise it to others. He says, praise completes the joy. The actual quote, he says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. And he says, when God is telling us to glorify him, to praise him, he is inviting us to enjoy him. He says, you can't get at the joy until you get out the joy. It's not like, 
I enjoy something and then I praise it. He says you enjoy it by praising it. Your joy is completed as you praise it. And the greater your praise, the greater your joy. He says if you noticed in your praise for God, one of the ways you experience that praise as joy is when you sing a great hymn. We sing one or two hymns uh, every Sunday. And usually uh, I... the, the Words of the hymn say it better than we could say it. It's why I often quote hymns. And I actually had a quote from a hymn in here, and when I was revising it, I cut it after having asked Eli to make that our last hymn for the day. So we're going to sing uh, Before the Throne of God Above because the words of that song match the conclusion of this sermon, even though I cut the words out of the sermon, which I didn't realize until this morning. So, we need transcendence. We search for that transcendence through coming to know God. We express that transcendence by praising God. But what happens if we don't do it? What happens when we're not pursuing the knowledge of God? What happens when we don't think his steadfast love is better than life? What happens when our actions demonstrate the denial of transcendence? That should be the last blank there in your outline, verses 9 and 10. The denial of transcendence. Oh, we got lots of time. Uh, David comes back to the revolt of Absalom. He says, those who seek to harm God's people end up harming themselves. Verse 9, those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. Those who persist in attacking God's people are going to fail. Verse 10. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. That is exactly what happens to Absalom's army when they finally meet David and his men in battle. It's in 2 Samuel 18. <coughs> Absalom is killed. David gives a command. It says, don't kill Absalom. He's my son. I want you to take him alive. Doesn't happen. Because David's general, Joab, says, we're not doing that. And they catch Absalom and they stab him like ten times. And of course, there's the famous quote, it's actually made famous by Shakespeare, Absalom, Absalom, my son. Second Samuel 18. But Absalom's body is thrown into a great pit, the depths of the earth. 2 Samuel 18 says, his traitor army is defeated, Psalm 63, given to the power of the sword. 2 Samuel 18, their bodies lay in great heaps to feed the scavenger animals, Psalm 63, a portion for jackals. What David says will happen, happens. Almost exactly. Now, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, a longtime pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, uh, with the Lord now, he comments here that these verses remind us that this is a real world after all. And that if we're going to be genuinely satisfied with God's love, it's not in some never-never land, but right here in the midst of the world's disappointments and frustrations and dangers. God's not offering David a carefree life any more than the Bible promises an easygoing existence to any believers today. But God does promise to keep our souls uh, safe from deadly assault in this world, bringing us safely through to the glories awaiting us in heaven. 
Psalm 121, our responsive reading this morning, tells us to look to God. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. We said that earlier. I don't know if you've noticed, but we work really hard to try to make everything fit together in the service. So the responsive reading and the music and all the different pieces and elements all flow together. Most of the time we do it pretty good. Not all the time, but most of the time we get it pretty good. And when we're able to do that, we can trust God to be true to his word and his promises. And that psalm that we read ends with, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. A wonderful blessing. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. We need transcendence. We search for transcendence through coming to know God. We express that transcendence by praising God. But what some people want, the idols of the modern world, money, sex, and power, is so strong that they're willing to deny that same transcendence. And what And when that happens, what does it take to get it back? Nothing less than the greatest spectacle of all. We started with spectacles. And back near the beginning of this psalm, David uh, comes and meets with God. Verse 2, he says, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. He has a sense of God's presence. And God's steadfast love fills his heart and he can't believe it. It's as if he's saying, I'm astounded. After all that I've done, why are you still with me? Why are you still blessing me? Why are you still loving me? It's totally undeserved. It's all of grace. But here you are. Thank you. And I think that's why verse 11 is so interesting at the very end of our psalm. After all this, he ends by saying, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. He's the king. What does that mean? David's reasserting his identity. God is still with me. I'm still the king. He's still here. He has this experience of grace, and it's the reason he can praise God uh, this way. And you and I need to realize that we have a far greater resource for the experience of grace than David did. David didn't know why God could still love him in spite of his sin. But you and I know why God can still love us in spite of our sin. David was a king who was driven into the wilderness because of his sins. But God did not abandon him. Centuries later, one of his descendants, direct descendants, another king, Jesus Christ, was driven into the wilderness tempted by Satan, was crucified outside the gate, was driven out not for his own sins, but for our sins, and God did in fact abandon him. Which is why he cried out, Matthew 27, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did God abandon him? Because Jesus got the abandonment that David deserved and that I deserve, and that you deserve, so that now God will never abandon you because he's already taken the penalty you deserve. He took the penalty for our sins on the cross, and that's the greatest spectacle of all. See, into our spectacle-loving world, with all of its spectacle-makers and spectacle-making industries, 
comes the greatest spectacle ever devised in the mind of God and brought about in world history, the cross of Christ. It is the hinge of history where all human spectacles meet one unsurpassed divine spectacle. The act of crucifixion, repeated thousands of times in the Roman Empire, was a spectacle guaranteed to attract attention. The nailing of living bodies onto trees along public roads was a Roman blood sport for the masses. It was public, it was visible, it was not confined to the arena. Symbolically, crucifixion is Rome publicly flexing its power before gawking spectators. And the goal of crucifixion is nothing short of and I'm quoting this from a theologian, the elimination of victims from consideration as members of the human race, a ritualized extermination of offenders deemed unfit to live, and the mocking and jeering that accompanied crucifixion were not only allowed, they were part of the spectacle and were programmed into it. (coughs) The Gospel of Luke gives us a glimpse of the effects the cross had on the crowd. Luke twenty three forty eight, And all the crowds had assembled for this spectacle. When they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. Scripture foreshadowed that Christ would watch those people watching him. Psalm twenty two seventeen. They stare and gloat over me. And they saw it all. They saw a man mocked, scorned, beaten, bloodied, and raised up on a tree. But they also saw creation shudder. The earth winced. The temple curtain split from top to bottom. The noonday sun was eclipsed for three hours. Tombs broke open. The bodies of Christians were raised to life. The death of Christ was not just another spectacle. It's the pinnacle of all spectacles. The cross of Christ is the greatest spectacle in history for what it ironically subverts. There on the hill of Calvary, Christ not only paid for sin, he conquered sin. We read that, Colossians 2. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The NIV translates that last verse, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. To die on a tree was to die under the curse of God. And Galatians 3 tells us Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. When you see him doing that for you, for your sin, in your place, on that cross, that becomes for you a transcendent experience. And from this moment on, God intended all human gaze to center on this climactic moment. It's as if God says to us, this is my beloved son crucified for you, a spectacle to capture your heart forever. 
St. Augustine said in an age of Roman spectacles, he said, Do not think, brethren, that our Lord God has dismissed us without spectacles. No, for there is nothing greater in the world to see than this, the lion vanquished by the blood of the lamb. Great preacher of the last century, Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, we're living in an age that is fond of spectacles. He wrote this about 70 years, maybe 80 years ago. He says, we live in an age that's very fond of spectacles in the sense of some remarkable happenings and events, some great show. And the Christian glory is in the cross as a spectacle. Because the more he looks at the cross, the more he sees the glory of God being revealed to him. It reveals to him the glory of the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He sees all that shining down on him. It is God's steadfast love that does that. God's covenant loyalty, his hesed, his refusal to give up on those he has taken to himself. And how do you know that God will never give up on you? Because he sent his son to prove it. It's like a smartphone screen made blank by the rays of direct sunshine. It's a screen, there's a spectacle there, but you can't see it because something greater, brighter, more glorious has come down and blanks it out. And he says, that's what happens one day when we shall see Christ's face. On that day, all the vain spectacles in this world of illusion, all the pixelated idols of our age, will finally and forever dissolve away in the radiance of his splendor. That's the promise. We need to take time and thank God for that and praise God for that. Do that now, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you. We confess our failure to search for transcendence, to pray for transcendence, to praise you for the transcendent experience that is the cross. So in the words of David found in First Chronicles 29, among his very last words, we praise you now. Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our Father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and we praise your glorious name. Lord, teach us to do that. Draw us ever closer to the one who has taught us to pray. Join with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.